Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. My guest today is Simon Russell, who is the founder and director of Behavioral Finance Australia. And in fact, this is the second time Simon will be on the show. He was previously on episode 32, discussing his book Cyborg. And in this episode, we'll take a look at Simon's new book, which looks at listed equity team and behavioral finance, with the title Behavioral Finance, a Guide for Listed Equity Teams. Some will also present at the I3 luncheon on this topic on the 3rd of November 2022 in Sydney. So keep an eye out for that. Simon, this is your fourth book on behavioral finance, focusing especially on institutional equity investors. How does this book came about? I guess how it came about is, I mean, I, I'm obviously very keen on behavioral finance. That's sort of what I built my sort of business in the last, last part of my career on. Um, and one of the things I try and do when I'm talking to people about I guess how they communicate is say, well, let's make stuff that's personally relevant for the people you're communicating with. So what I tried, I tried to live by the same rules myself and say, well, how can I package up the sort of the behavioral finance stuff that I talk to people about in ways that is relevant for them? So rather than creating a here's everything about behavioral finance sort of tome that might be a textbook at university or something, what I've tried to do with each of the books is to say, well, let's find a particular segment of the market, be it in this case, the equities teams and say, well, what's the stuff that's particularly relevant for you guys from the, from the research literature, from the academic research, from psychology and behavioral finance? What are some of the applications that sort of the practical ways that you can use this sort of stuff? And sort of bring it together and say, let's, I'm not gonna tell you what's relevant for financial advisors. There's another book on that if you're interested in that, but let's just cut it down so that here's all the stuff that really is relevant. Here's how it's relevant. Here's what you can do about it. So hopefully it's a bit of a blend of the research plus a lot of applications. And I think, um, you know, we often think about institutional investors as having quite, you know, rigorous processes. Um, there's big teams, but, I think you found that they're still uh, not immune to cognitive biases, even if they are aware that they uh, might exist and they might affect the, their operations. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the prevailing ones that you have seen in your work with institutional investors? Yeah, so I I would first not want a professional investor to say uh, that I'm suggesting that they're the same as a retail or a mum and dad investor in any in any well in in almost any way. Because certainly there are things, decision-making biases would impact retail investors that I would say, there's no way this would apply to a professional investor. So there's certainly those, some of those things professional investors would be able to see through or their, their processes would completely overcome. There are some things that apply 
to a lesser extent to professional investors. You see it in retail investors. And then when you try and look for it in professional investors, you see it, but not nearly to the same extent. But then there are other things that you would say, well, this actually just wouldn't apply at all to a retail investor. But it then becomes quite critical in the case of a professional investment team. So to give you a couple of examples, starting with one um, that I've looked at specifically with one uh, one team in particular, although I talked to a lot of teams about this, but one team was uh, willing to share some data with me and, we, and we'd sort of looked at it in some detail. And that's around regression to the mean. Of course, many professional investors would be completely aware of the concept of regression to the mean. It's not a surprise that some things will revert to means. I, I guess what, um, what perhaps is overlooked are some of the, the nuances that then specifically apply. So taking, say, return on invested capital. Okay, return on invested capital is one of the things that we know there is a, a strong tendency for things to re revert to a mean. Look at it, companies within an industry, they tend to revert to the industry average for return on invested capital. And if you spoke to many professional investors and say, well, why do you think that is? Um, my suspicion, or more than my suspicion, this is, this is what tends to be the responses, is, well, you know what, if there's a company that has a particularly high return on invested capital or an industry that's that's doing particularly well, well, it's going to it's going to encourage competitors. There's going to be an influx of capital into that industry. There'll be increased levels of competition, probably some price compression, margin compression. Those factors will lead to a, re a reduction in the return on invested capital. Therefore, it will regress more to towards a, I don't know a weighted average cost of capital for that particular risk category of of industry. And I would agree that that certainly is a dynamic that applies. But what's the uh, what is less likely to be factored into to a professional investor's decision making there is that the the, the statistical uh, aspects of regression to the mean or the uh, elements of uncertainty that exist. So yes, there'll be some regression because of those sort of causal aspects, but there'll be some regression because actually, you know what, some of that high return on invested capital was due to difficult to measure, uh, difficult to forecast, bits of uncertainty, Stuff that's just a bit hard to sort of put your finger on and, and draw a particular causal relationship. And if it's high, it probably means that industry benefited from a few of those things or the company benefited from a few of those sort of things. And over time, those things will wash out. The, the, the luck, if you like, will diminish. And so when I've gone to look at the forecasts that um, uh, well, some of the investment managers who have been um, happy to share some of this data with and looked at it together, well, you do see when there's extremes that they forecast some reversion, but they don't forecast enough. So that sort of statistical element is saying, well, actually, look, there is there's going to be more reversion than you anticipate for return on investor capital, similarly for earnings per share. But then, of course, there's other things that re re regression to the mean just will not apply for. And so you can both overestimate and underestimate. My BHP's revenue, for example, that's not going to regress to the industry average for sort of minerals companies. No, the, the, the tiny little companies will be tiny tomorrow. BH will be massive tomorrow, right? That, that They will not regress to some average over a period of one or two, two three years. So there's quite a bit in, in that. And does that apply to retail investors? Do retail investors fail to adequately reflect re, re, um, mean reversion into their earnings per share forecasts? Well, not normally, because not normally they they're not normally actually creating an earnings per share forecast. All right, they're not they're not sort of having some of those levels of sophisticated processes that that a professional investment team would go through. And it's because they're going through those sort of processes that they they are then prone to some of those sort of decision making biases that retail investors perhaps could sort of happily sail by without them being impacted. Yeah, if you are aware of that. Um... 
is it possible to sort of improve your 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 forecasts and with a better awareness of reversion to the mean? Yeah, well, as you said in the outset, I agree that awareness of decision making biases by itself is rarely sufficient. So it's a, I, I would say it's a good starting point. And to be honest, that's sort of part of what my business model is, is to raise awareness as a starting point to actually doing stuff about it. But awareness is is rarely sufficient. And, and partly it's because in the moment, if you ask me about it, if, if I'm an analyst and I'm looking at a company and, and, and this behavioral finance guy comes along and says, well, I'm not sure you've got enough mean reversion in your in your per share forecast. I'd probably tell that behavioral finance guy to bugger off because <laughs> I know this company and, and it, no, it's going to come back here. No, it's got a good, there'll be some rationale for it. And of course, there will be substance to that rationale. I, I'm not suggesting for a second that all of what that analyst would say would be entirely rubbish. What I am saying is that Statistically speaking, if I get enough analysts and get enough of their forecasts together and look for the ones that are at the extremes, I will find this reversion, which is exactly what we've done. So what I would do instead is, is uh, of well, uh, instead of either saying, hey, throw out all your analyses because they're rubbish, I wouldn't say that, and, and neither would I say keep everything you're doing because it's perfect. So I think there's a bit of a middle ground which says let's find the ones that are most at risk of error. In this case, reversion to the mean. Which are those ones? And they're probably going to be the ones that are at the extremes, either extremely high earnings per share growth or return on investor capital at one extreme, or extremely low at the other extreme. And say, let's look at those things, because if you're telling me at those extremes there's not going to be much mean reversion, then you would want to have a very robust piece of analysis with very good quality data and great visibility over those companies' future earnings, for example to suggest that you are different from the average. And yes, there will be exceptions to the average. So I'm not saying that that analyst will necessarily be wrong, but it's just saying, let's look at where the errors are most likely. Where is it most going to be most impactful? And make sure if you're not doing, if you're not factoring in, in, in this case, reversion to the mean, or in other cases, confirmation bias or other things, then uh, you've got a very good sort of basis for your decision. Yeah, yeah. So in your book, you look at different areas of, of the investment process. Um, you also look at how teams interact with each other and even at how, you know, analysts interact with potentially company management that they are researching, that they might be investing in. So there's, there's a lot of different areas in your book. And I'm not going to do a, a broad overview. I thought maybe we do a bit of a deep dive into one particular topic. And you have a chapter on, on uh, um, selling discipline. And I thought it was an interesting one because I think that is probably one of the first areas where I realized there are some behavioral issues around this. And I think a long time ago when I was still working for Morningstar, I was in a conversation and they were talking about a particular fund manager who shall remain unnamed, who had a tendency to fall in love with stocks. And at first I didn't quite understand what I meant, but then I realized, okay, there is a behavioral element there that are not purely driven by their investment processes. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, what some of the issues are around uh, selling decisions? Yeah, so the reason I, I broke selling out separately from buying is, as you say, some of the things are particularly relevant in that context, which is sort of interesting because from a theoretical perspective, you'd say, well, buying and selling are very similar. In both cases, in the case of equities, well, I'm trying to understand the inherent value of a company or the security I'm looking to purchase. And I'm trying to compare that value with the price that I could trade the security on the market. And if my valuation is higher than 
the, the current share price, it's a buy decision. And potentially if my valuation is lower than the current share price, it's a sell decision. So it sort of looks like it's, it's the identical uh, decision, just that depending on whether I come out above or below the, value, the current uh, share price. However, um, the sell decision can come with a lot of sort of emotional baggage, if you like, which is uh, perhaps where you're going with this. And, and I think it's in particular, if you're looking to sell a company or sell some shares in a company that has fallen in value. So you're going to realize a loss. That, that I think is the critical um, scenario. Selling for a gain is, is, is not without its issues, but probably selling for the loss is the more critical one. And the reason for that is that the, the, the implications that come with it. So if I've said buy ABC company for a dollar and now it's fallen to 80 cents, for me to now say, yeah, we should sell that thing for 80 cents. Well, it makes me look a bit silly, doesn't it? I, I said it was a good idea to buy it at a dollar. Now it's 80 cents. And yes, no doubt something has changed. Um, but at, certainly at a high level, the implication is my initial decision probably wasn't great. It looks like I made an error. Now, of course, we can stand back and say, well, on the basis of the information at the time, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fair enough. But the, the sort of your initial sort of outcome bias, if you like, is, no, that was a bad decision. I, I've made a loss on that. So it makes me look, it undermines my credibility. Uh, it, it, it makes me look like I've erred. So I don't, I don't like that. It makes, gives me, a, I, I want to look, I want to look good to others. I want to feel good to myself. And, and this is sort of a, a challenge to both those two things. But it also, I think, has a second aspect to it, which is, well, now that I'm selling or recommending my team sells for 80 cents, is that because really I'm capitulating? I, I'm, it's not, I haven't, I haven't really changed my mind, but because the market's moving against me, I'm sort of, I don't know, weakly sort of, meekly sort of succumbing to market forces. So not only is it my intelligence that's called into question, but also my character. <laughs> like, so, so now, of course, you can potentially overcome these. There's potentially arguments for selling in those sort of cases. But these are the extra burdens that come with selling a, a, a stock for a loss that just are absent in the case of buying a position for which that sort of that, that history uh, is not in place. So that's, I guess, underpinning some of the things that go in that chapter about why we need to be thinking about those sort of scenarios in particular. Yeah, it seems to come back to to or there's sort of a correlation there with that people feel losses more than they feel gains. I mean, so it, it, there seems to be uh, this sort of regret there as well. But does that mean that, um, and, and I was thinking, I've used the quote a couple of times of, of, of the growth pioneer, Philip Fisher, who, who is sort of famous for saying, the best time to sell is almost never. Mm -hmm. Does this prove him wrong? Well, that's... There's a similar quote from Warren Buffett, isn't there, about my favorite holding period is forever or something like that. I think it's just like, yeah, almost the same concept. Well, I don't think I could prove, if you like, um, that statement wrong. But but I think more generally, if I took a step back and looked at the behavioral finance research literature and said, what does it say about holding periods and trading frequencies? How does the, how does the the psychology play into that more generally? So setting setting aside the selling and buying specifically for for a second. And just reflecting overall, if, if I was to look at some of the biggest ticket sort of decision-making biases that apply, and I use these all the time because they're so easy to demonstrate and that you get such big effects. And I, if not the top of my list, it'd be very close to the top of my list would be overconfidence. And when I say overconfidence, I, I should sort of put a little asterisk by it and say, well, there's, there's different ways of defining overconfidence. And psychologists would break that into different components. But one of the robust or most robust components of overconfidence 
is that we underestimate how much uncertainty there is in our decisions. So if I've just done a company valuation and I think I think it's, these shares are worth a dollar twenty, well, it's probably might be more than a dollar twenty, it might be less than a dollar twenty. There's a broader range of possibilities um, than what I might imagine. If I think the market's overvalued generally, well, I'm not quite as certain as I think. If I think inflation's going to be high, and probably it's going to be different from what I think. So, so all this uncertainty, is, and as I say, it's very easy to demonstrate with just little decision-making games where you get people to specify ranges and how far do you think the moon is or what do you think the ASX 200 will be in 12 months. And Anyway, it is very easy to show. And the implication of the fact that we have these ranges of uncertainty, what we anticipate to be at the uncertainty or, or feel implicitly is the amount of uncertainty of those decisions is actually way too narrow. The implication there is we should be doing a lot less. We should be doing a lot less because actually we know less than we, we think. And we really only should be doing something probably when we, we have the justification to be taking a more extreme position, which is when things are actually at the extremes. Evaluation is not just a bit above average. It's a long way above average, for example. Okay, that, that's when we actually should be taking an action. So I think that, that supports... Um, Philip Fisher's proposition about almost almost never. But in relation to selling more specifically though, so in in that case, I mean there's there's risks both ways. So there's there's a risk of selling too early because you know what, I, there was just made a market announcement and really it's just a bit of noise. There was just a bit of a blip. This just a six-month sort of downturn, but actually the company is still solid. If I sell in response to that six monthly sort of blip well, you know what, I've missed out on this sort of broader long-term gain. So there's a risk of selling too soon. But on the flip side, of course, that six-month blip, well, if, what if it wasn't a blip? What if it actually is a material downturn? And this is just the first indication of it. And, that, and I mean, that, that, of course, is the job of the investment analyst to sort of try and discern those two things. But it's not simply a bias of selling too early or selling too late. There actually is quite a bit of nuance in there. And and. Again, if I look at some of the big ticket things that have come out of decision-making research, often it's not a bias per se that's the problem, doing something too much one way or doing something too much the other way. Often it's the noise. It's, it's sort of like the idea that two wrongs don't make a right. Okay, I, there's one company that I sold too late. There's one company that I sold too early. That doesn't mean that I'm right. I mean, those two, they don't average out to being perfect. <laughs> I've got both of them wrong. So, yeah. so I've got a process now that's got noise in it. So I guess that's that's sort of what I'm aiming at throughout the book is to say, well, whether or not there's actually bias in the definition of going too high or too low or too long, too short, whatever it is, that might not actually be the main issue here. The main issue is that we need a process that is robust to the risks, whether they be selling too early because of uh, noise, whether it be selling too late because of confirmation bias or whatever they are, and each will apply in different circumstances. So let's just think about and target the response and try and take the noise out of the process. Yeah. So how do you make a robust process? Are there elements um, where you potentially could introduce a, a quantitative approach or is it purely a qualitative approach? Uh, what is sort of your thoughts around how to build more uh, certainty, I suppose, in that process? I never like to say there's a one size fits all approach um, for anything. Of course, sources for courses and depending on people's investment processes and their value propositions and all that sort of stuff. But if I'm looking at sell decisions in particular, again, if you look at what's causing the problem, the, the problem is that as I'm coming to make a decision to sell a stock, I'm aware of the fact that I've made a loss in this scenario. So I, I can't sort of 
forget that very easily. <laughs> I just go, oh no, forget that you bought this for a dollar, Simon. Now let's come and see whether you should sell it for 80 cents. No, I can't, uh, I can't it's, it's not like um, a lawyer striking something from the record in a court case. That, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so one strategy to try and do that is to say, well, how can I make a decision when I'm not aware of there being a loss? And of course I can't be unaware after the losses occurred, so I bury my head in the sand or go and sort of trade from Fiji or something maybe, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's sort of impractical. But what I can do is enter into a pre-commitment. So as I've bought the thing for a dollar, I can now pre-commit to doing something in the scenario that a loss has emerged. So when you say, is there a quant example? Well, it might be, I say, yeah, let's set a quantitative rule that says if this thing falls by 25%, there's a hard stop loss that says we will sell in that scenario. So this is like the sort of Ulysses you probably come across the Ulysses. I can't remember if I spoke to Daniel yes. about it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so tying yourself to the mast and and um, ha- happily sailing past the sirens because you've pre-committed to your course of action in, in, and um, and the twenty five percent loss results in you selling and and that's that's it. So that that's the hard quantitative approach, but not many people enjoy that. I mean, I, I can imagine I wouldn't enjoy that. <laughs> I don't use that certainly <laughs> for my investments either. It's it takes all the flexibility and nuance out of it. Why is it dropped by 25? Is something material happened? I don't want to be forced to sell something if it's now 25% cheaper. I'd like the option to buy more, for example. Um, yeah, so that Ulysses approach is, I think, difficult to apply and justifiably as well because for, for those sorts of reasons, there's probably some nuance in it and you want to be able to reflect that nuance. So what's an alternative then? Well, an, an alternative is to say, rather than pre-committing to this hard stop-loss if X happens, then we'll do Y. Well, can we commit to perhaps a process? So if X happens, and maybe X is a share, certain share price decline, or maybe it's uh, earnings per share missing forecast by a certain amount, or maybe it's a material change in strategy or a large M&A transaction or something. I don't know. We could, we could set a bunch of criteria, some of which could be more quant and some qual. And rather than saying, in these circumstances, we will sell, then let's pre-commit to a process that will take place in that case. So here are the questions that we must answer. Here's the information that will be gathered. Here's the the people who will be involved. Here are the criteria to be assessed. And there's quite a bit of nuance uh, in each of those um, those questions and what you should incorporate, that sort of thing. But this approach is, I guess, is rather than tying yourself to the mast and saying, I've pre-committed to sailing through regardless of whether there's rocks in the way because now I can't actually get off the mast. Well, this is more like setting the gutter guards, I guess, in the, when you're going 10 pin bowling. So you've given yourself some protections because you've free forecast that you might need. You have some difficulty in those sort of circumstances, but you've also got a bit of flexibility and a bit of nuance to allow for, yeah, whatever those circumstances might uh, might contain. Yeah, so you're building more triggers for a particular uh, t- uh, points where it triggers a refuel or it triggers you know, a reassessment of the original investment case. Yeah, and I, I suspect a lot of people already have those sort of trigger events, which then leads to well, what what actually are those, the, the nuances around the process that are followed. So, so, for example, one of the problems with confirmation bias and sort of some the way some of the sort of motivated reasoning works where I'm motivated to reach a certain outcome, well, it can manifest in effectively me having different weights that I place on information. So if I want to say this company is still good, well, then I might now place a big weight on the fact that, oh, the management team has remained consistent. And I think the management team is very is a, is a capable management team. So that effectively, it might have originally started as a 20% chunk of my original decision making. 
And now that I'm sort of scraping around looking for reasons to hold on to this thing, it's got bigger and bigger implicitly. I'm not going actually 20 has turned into 50. It's just it's become bigger so that now, I don't know, it's maybe some poor operational performance, which I've now effectively weighed as a smaller proportion. So the counter there might be not just committing to reassess, but committing also to the certain decision-making weights that will apply. We will reassess management, it, but, but it will remain 20% of our decision-making, for example. So that whatever the thing has changed can't just be sort of uh, um, diluted, if you like, is the, is, the, is the term for it, the dilution effect through that process. Yeah. Now, you look at a number of biases, and, and one that you in particular delve into as well is, is the confirmation bias. Um, and, and that basically works when, when people's reasoning, information gathering, all become motivated towards sort of confirming what they already believe. Um, how does this impact selling decisions? Yeah, well, for a start, I guess it's not an explicit process. So as you say, it affects it affects information gathering. But you don't hear someone say, "Let me just go and gather the information that confirms my hypothesis." So they don't they don't explicitly say that. Um, but you see some of that sort of stuff in experiments. And, I, and and this is the challenge that I have, I guess, is that in each individual circumstance, you won't see this in your own decision. So I, I guess, well, I've, I've put a few examples in the book. So to give you one example about how how that works. There's one of my favorite examples was uh, was an enzyme test or something. It was a, it was a, a make believe pseudo enzyme test to show that you whether you had some sort of enzyme deficiency or something like that. Anyway, it, it was all made up, but they they gave people this pseudo test, and some of them had said, "Oh, actually, you know what? It looks like you've got an enzyme deficiency." They didn't really, but and then the other people they got this test. Oh no, it looks like you don't have the enzyme deficiency. Now, if you've got the people who have the, the test that says I have the enzyme deficiency, what do they do? Well, they take a bit of time sort of redoing the tests or re-examining the results or sort of making sure, really, do I have this enzyme deficiency? And I'm sure if you ask those people, what are you doing? They'd say, well, look, it's important. I need to understand whether I've got this deficiency. And so I'm doing my due diligence effectively. Yeah. However, you look at the people who have the test that says they don't have the enzyme deficiency. And they don't seem to be nearly so worried about doing their due diligence and checking whether they have it. So they are much more comfortable to say, no, no, no enzyme deficiency for me, along I go. So when you compare those two groups, you go, why is it that one group spends a lot more time um, checking whether they've actually got this thing? Well, they're motivated to try and find a way to under, undermine that sort of undermine that piece of evidence that says there's something wrong with them. Actually, I prefer that something wasn't wrong with me, and therefore I'm motivated to do more information searches to find that. So, so that's an example. The information searching um, aspect: um, Do we search for more information when we're trying to confirm a stock uh, hypothesis where where there's been some, something's gone wrong? Secondly, is lower standards. So when I actually do find some information, do I apply a lower standard to assess its credibility? And again, you can look at research around this. So, um, well, to, to make up an example, but this is sort of along the same sort of lines as what the, the research shows. If you if you got people from the US who are sort of pro-gun control and others who are anti-gun control, and then you show them a study with a piece of statistical analysis in it, and you say to some of them, oh, here's the statistics, and it shows that gun control doesn't work. And you show some of the others, here's the statistics, same statistics, and it shows gun control does work. So what happens is the people who wanted gun control, when they look at the statistics and are told it does lead to that it does work, they're happy to to say, yeah, yep, uh, yep, the statistics make sense. Yep, that makes sense to me. Similarly, the people who who didn't want gun control, when they look at the statistics and are told the statistics 
take gun control doesn't work, they say, yeah, happy to agree with that, no problem. However, when the reverse scenario applies, where the people who wanted gun control are told the statistics tell them it doesn't work, well, the people who don't want gun control are told the statistics shows it does work. So when you've got this countervailing evidence, well, that's when you go, oh, no, but the study doesn't, it had a small sample, it's, it was based in Texas and that doesn't apply on the East Coast or on the West Coast or whatever. So, so you're finding ways to undermine the credibility of that sort of analysis based on the conclusion. So that's the sort of stuff that the research shows, which I guess is going to be implicit in the way people are looking for investment related information. Although on a case by case basis, you're not going to see it. But that's the sort of stuff that we need to um, uh, to look for. And, and the other one, of course, is well, another one is is memory recall where the subjective experience that we have is my memory seems like I'm watching an old video back over. I, yeah, I can see in my mind or it's, it was like I, I can read the text. So it's, it sort of feels like this is the objective sense of reality. But even those those flashbulb moments, have you heard of that? You come across the flashbulb moments where you, where were you when the 9-11 towers sort of came down, all that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. But they seem, that seems like, that's like a, almost like a photograph or a, a mini video of what I was doing. Yeah. That's, that's in, but when they've gone and studied those and said, okay, now describe what you were doing at that time. And I, and I can write that down in detail. Uh, uh, it feels to me like I could seriously write that one down in detail right now. I, I reckon I've got a good memory. But then when they ask me again in 10 years and I write it down and I go, yeah, no, I can remember exactly what I was doing at 9-11. I write down exactly what I was doing. And then you compare my two recollections of those two things and go, on both cases, you thought you knew what you were talking about, but they're different. Right. So one of them can't be. <laughs> so it's so, yeah. So there's a bunch of things, but they're not they're not easy for us to understand or identify because they're happening sort of implicitly and, and sort of in the background of our decision making. And they're, they're the things I guess we've got to have processes that are robust to because you can't sort of subjectively stop yourself and say, you know what, my memory is faulty here, or it's, it's very difficult to do that. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminded me of a uh, a book that came out quite a while ago now by Antonio Damasio. And he sort of looked at how emotions impacted decision making. And sort of when we think about finance, some of these uh, um, situations that you describe, you, you basically almost think like you want to have just a completely pure objective view and be able to assess your own decisions and motivations. But in that book, they also show that people that don't have emotions actually can't make any decision whatsoever because none of it is any more relevant to them than anything else. So they are completely indecisive. So we, we're trying to sort of address behavioral biases, but is it ever possible to, to, to sort of iron them out because the very uh, emotions that lead to sort of these biases are also necessary for, in the end, to you know, make a decision and get on with things? Yeah. So in that case, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. I mean, particularly if what I'm trying to do has a value component in it. So do I like the red shirt or the blue shirt, for example? Well, that that's my value judgment. And if you've taken out the my emotional centers in my brain and asked me to work out what I want, I can do my analyses all day long. But in the end of the day, I'm never going to be able to make that decision because it's effectively a value 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 judgment. But I think if you look at, I don't know, for example. Uh, going back a bit now, Daniel Kahneman and um, and Gary Klein, where they're trying to say, well, when is it that we should be using our expertise, bearing in mind that our expertise could have some gut judgment aspect to it that we don't really quite understand? 
but it's not necessarily wrong. It might be wrong, but it's not necessarily. When should, when should we be using that versus when should we use often relatively simple algorithmic processes that are, well, I guess, quant in the, in the, in the parlance of sort of in, in the investment space, but capturing the intelligence of a person and saying, here's a bunch of rules that effectively take the, the emotion out of it and just apply them uh, systematically. And the answer to that isn't straightforward because it's you, you end up with different circumstances in which different things will apply. But it does give some clues about when we should be doing each. So when can I rely on my gut instinct? Well, I can rely on my gut instinct when I, it's had good feedback on which to learn. And good feedback means that I can, it's my feedback is timely, it's accurate, it's easy for me to understand the implications of it. Like, I don't know, driving a car, for example, I get good timely feedback because if I turn the wheel a little bit, I can feel the car moving. I can see the car moving. It's sort of no problem. So I learn to drive. I learn what the, the feel of the steering, steering wheel is. Uh, versus, I mean, poor feedback, for example, if you go in an old hotel one day and turn the hot water in the shower and you turn it on and then just cold water comes out and you think, maybe I turned the wrong tap on, I'm not sure. And then you try turning the other one and then that's cold as well. And then eventually the hot comes and you think, wait a minute, was it the first tap or the second tap that got the hot water? So, so that, and in, unfortunately, a lot of investing is like that. It's because I can make a decision today. Do I know whether it's right or wrong? Well, I might have to wait a fairly long time to work that out. And even in the future, when I do work that out, whether I was right or wrong, is it because of the reasons that I had articulated today or was I just lucky? So to me, a big chunk of that, and there's a whole chapter on this in the book, is the decision-making analytics that allows you to gain the feedback that then can train your explicit conscious decision-making but also sort of help your that that sort of gut instinct to say actually you know what as, as you're right you can't get rid of it but sometimes it might even be useful to have it but it needs to be trained appropriately using good quality feedback yeah yeah very interesting the the other aspect is we we started sort of by analyzing the the selling decisions and and it seems that some of the biases inherent in that is is basically coming from the idea that people just don't want to look silly they want to be you know come across as professional and confident and uh, successful people. To a degree, I was wondering how much can you uh, change sort of some of these biases by having a, a, a sort of a company culture where, you know, failure is, is, is less of an issue. And I was thinking sort of, you mentioned Ray Dalio a couple of times in the book and his, his approach of radical transparency where, you know, maybe I've not worked in that environment, but I can sort of see if you fail a couple of times in front of everybody and you see other people, you, you sort of build up more of a resistance to that. And, and maybe you're not as worried about it the third or the fourth time. Um, is there sort of a cultural aspect that you can make these biases less pronounced? Yeah. I mean, the Ray Dalio example, I think is, is fascinating because you say, what happens if I've just failed in front of everyone a couple of times? And maybe I become more resistant to it, or maybe I'm fired at that point. I, I mean, that, that, or sorry, maybe not fired, but maybe I've left the organisation because that, that, that I think was quite a confronting environment for people who were not quite ready for it. It's quite different from what a lot of people were uh, had experienced elsewhere. Um, but to answer your question, I think I mean, yes, the, the culture makes a big difference, and I mean, I do see this going around different investment groups. I mean, so, sometimes even just from spending an hour with with people and watch observing um, sort of how teams function, you can see some of the sort of cultural um, differences. And 
when when I dig into culture, I mean, I, I guess it's, I mean, it's it's not just making the person comfortable to be wrong. It's also making the team members comfortable to challenge each other as well. And so what's what are some of the things you can do um, to encourage both sides of that conversation? I mean, some of the things I think would be agreeing team values. And some of the, so I guess if you don't do these sort of things explicitly, often there's an implicit value that maybe is bubbling along, which may or may not be advantageous. So it's partially just bringing these things to explicit attention and agreeing these, these are our principles. So like Ray Dalio, I would say transparency would be pretty high on that list. So that is, we've all agreed as a team that every time there's a decision, we each each of us will be transparent as to the information and reasoning that we are relying on for that decision. So that means that if I've if I've put forward a, a view and someone wants to say, hey Simon, what was that based on? Can you share the information? I, I now won't take that as a, a slight on my decision making and you think I'm wrong or I'm I, I don't know what I'm talking about. No, no, that's just how we work around here and that applies to everybody. So that that should make it easier for me to accept but also easier for someone else um, to ask in that case for the transparency. But I give a few examples in the book where the, I think the transparency can apply across a, a range of things. So even in the questions that we ask. So if I ask you, uh, so, you so you're an analyst and I ask you, well, um, so what cash flow multiple is this company that you're suggesting we buy? What cash flow multiples are trading on? Okay, now what's, what is the implication of that question? Is it, I think your cash flow multiple is a bit too high. I think this thing is expensive. Is it? Am, am I comparing it to something else? Is it versus if I'm more transparent in my question and said, you know what, I think this company ABC that you're suggesting might be a bit rich. Um, I'm comparing it to XYZ over here, which is trading on four times next year's cash flow. What what cash flow multiple is ABC trading on? Okay, so now you know what I'm comparing it with. You, we can engage in a dialogue about is that comparison fair? You now know what year's cash flow I'm talking about. So we can talk about whether one year's cash flow number is, is versus another. We can talk about whether, anyway, it opens the door for a, for a lot more sort of robust critical conversations in there, So which is all about yeah, the, the transparency aspect. So in terms of culture, I'd say one would be the, the values, agreed team values. Similarly, agreed team shared assumptions. So again, these things could be implicit like, um, I know what I'm talking about and you don't know what you're talking about because this is the company that I follow and you're just an outsider who covers technology stocks and what do you know about coal or whatever. Um, yeah. Versus the implicit assumption could be, well, I know some things about this investment, but you probably also do know some things about this this investment as well. We both have something to contribute. But that's another implicit assumption. And what else? And trust. Trust would be another one I'd put on there as well, which is, I mean, people harp on about um, trust the whole time. And for me, it's not about trust per se. It's about the right type of trust. Because if I've just told you ABC is a good investment, I don't want you to go, yes, Simon, I trust you. That's a good idea. Let's do it. No, that's not what we want. We want you not to trust what I say. We want you, you and I to engage in a robust conversation around whether this really is a good idea. So don't trust what I say at face value. But what we do want is trust between us that we're both working to a shared objective that we don't have some dark motive that I'm trying to undermine you or vice versa, uh, that that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so, yeah, there's a few of those sort of things I think we can work on sort of culturally that will facilitate those sort of robust team conversations. Yeah. 
You also addressed the question um, of the relationship between IQ and behavioral biases. So we know that in the investment industry, there's a lot of very smart people. Is it possible to just outsmart these biases? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I quite like the research around intelligence because it does correlate with a lot of good things. So yeah, intelligence does matter. And as a general rule, it's, yeah, it's, it's beneficial. Um, however, context matters. And, it, and in some cases, and this is the minority, but certainly in some cases, being more intelligent, is, in, in more intelligent is, does actually provide a detriment. And confirmation bias is one of those examples. So if I'm more intelligent or I have more information or I have more expertise, those things tend to correlate with me being very able to create a narrative and to pull data points to support my story. So if I've got a motivation to create a story about why ABC is a good company, we should continue to hold it even though it's fallen. Me being intelligent, having lots of information, expertise, awesome. I'm very good at that. Uh, however, those sort of things don't tend to correlate with the reasons that people then provide for doing the opposite. Yeah. In that case, um, yeah, IQ can go either way. The, um, uh, the way I like to characterize some of those biases is, is, is like a, it's like a bit like a virus which evolves to suit its environment and its host. So if I'm an, a highly intelligent analyst with high amounts of information, expertise, I've been in the industry for ages, well, the virus will evolve to suit me. So it's going to find when is it that I'm reaching the limits of my cognitive capacity, when I'm bumping into uncertainty and when I don't have experience or when I'm feeling emotional or when I'm tired and hungry, that's when bias will creep into me. And that might be quite different from when it creeps into somebody else who's just a junior analyst or a retail investor or, uh, or whoever it is. So anyway, so intelligence helps. I think there's a couple of other things that perhaps are maybe well, i was going to say better proxies but anyway maybe just different proxies that might add an extra element to that decision the one is the the cognitive reflective test which i'm guessing you've probably have you come across that mm -hmm. you have yeah so you all right so you'll get this one right no no doubt then which is how many um if it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets how long does it take 10 machines to make 10 widgets uh five minutes well done. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I put you on the spot, so you had to get that one right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think that, that's the hardest of the cognitive reflective test, which is it's got three standard questions. The other one's about the pond with the lily pads on it that doubles in size, and the other and the other one was the bat and the ball one. Where yeah, the to... bat and the ball, that's uh, Kahneman, yeah. Yeah, so, so those, those sorts of things, which are not about intelligence per se, although um, no doubt it probably helps to be a bit more intelligent, but... They're more about, do I pause and reflect on these sorts of things? When the lily pad doubles every size, actually I pause and I think, oh no, it's not half half the time it takes to get half the pond full. It's actually just all the days up to the last one and then it doubles on the last day. Yeah, so, so it's that cognitive reflection, being willing to pause. Often that's what, what it takes. When I'm talking to, to groups about sort of anchoring, for example, or framing, often all it takes is to think about a different way to frame a decision or think about an alternative anchor. But those things do require pausing, stopping. So that's that's a it's a skill rather than sort of core intelligence, uh, if you like. And the other piece I'd add to that as well is to say, if it's if it's often if it's not about it raw intelligence and it's about often basic things like how you how much attention you pay or whether you pause and reflect, that sort of thing, then really we just need a bunch of tools to help us do that. Like a checklist, for example. 
like in that mean reversion one. I don't need to challenge all of my decisions, but I would like a checklist that says, look, if, if boxes A, B, C, and D are all ticked, alarm bells are ringing. Now is the time that you need to be paying attention to this thing. Make sure you've answered these questions because this is the time you're most likely to make a, a, an error. And having a checklist to force you to do that, I mean, it's a bit like the pilot example, of course, isn't it? You've got multiple different checklists there. And it's not because you want the pilot to learn how to take a plane off the, off the to, to, to um, launch a plane off the tarmac or whatever. That's not the purpose of the checklist. The purpose of the checklist is just to make sure that you remind them to set the flaps to 15 degrees or whatever they have to do before yeah. they take off. So it's the same sort of principle. Intelligence probably helps, but these sort of tools and other skills around around it probably help also. Yeah, 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 for sure. So in, in this book, you look at uh, particular listed equity teams. Do you have any books on the boil, future books? Perhaps we look at fixed income investors next time. Are you suggesting the fixed income is a is in need of a book about behavioral finance? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I don't know. Have you got kids? Yes, three. Three. Yeah. I, I, my suspicion is that have, writing a book. Well, this is how it feels to me. Is a bit like having a child. That as soon as you have the child, you think, "Oh my God, I'm not having another one of those." <laughs> <laughs> but but after a while, time time passes and then you think oh no it's it's not so bad I, oh no we could probably go back for another one so i'm just at the i don't know a few weeks after launch i just need a bit of a chance however having said that i the, the niches that i have been working in that i think probably are, are ripe for next cab off the rank books um I, I suspect my next one will be behavioral finance a guide for unlisted asset investors or something like that okay there's a lot of overlap i mean there has to be a bit of bit of tweaking in terms of well we're no no, no longer looking at um, capital markets we're now looking at a due diligence data room when we go in and look at a business or a piece of infrastructure or something that we're looking to buy so there's a, there's a bit of nuance there but it also brings in things like um uh, negotiations for example so I do a heap of stuff in negotiations. There's a whole lot of psychology around communication and influence and engagement and anchoring and all this sort of stuff that goes into negotiations. Okay. Putting a chunk in there, putting a chunk in about, um, so so private equity venture capital team, for example, they probably have a person on the board. They'll probably be engaging more closely with management uh, in that unlisted environment in which they, they're an owner or a major a shareholder in a company. So there's a, there's a chunk there about how decision-making applies when you're engaging with management, when you're working with boards, when you're sort of thinking about culture in the in your investee company, not just about your own team, for example. So I suspect when I get past the new baby phase, uh, <laughs> I, I suspect that might be the next cab off the rank. So this question was a little bit too soon. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was too soon. <laughs> That's right. I'm still frail from, the, but yeah, a bit fragile from my experience, I'm afraid. All right. Well, I hope you recover soon, but uh, I really enjoyed the book. It, uh, it's a good read. So for everybody listening to this podcast, uh, go check it out. And uh, Simon, thank you very much for this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank mm-hmm. you.